I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examines, the human hunger to own land has shaped so much of our history and traditions. In England, still to this day, there are these ceremonies called beating the bounds. And the small boys, it sounds terribly brutal, they're often turned upside down and their heads gently banged onto the ground <laughs> so that they would remember for all of their lives where the boundaries were and pass that on to their children. So boundaries are very important and very ancient. And later, a Native American's perspective, which has less to do with private ownership, but of caretaking. If you give a plant water, there's reciprocity between you and the plant. You have to water it, you have to take care of it, you have to make sure it has sun and soil. That's a particular form of reciprocity in order to begin to understand the connection between your actions that you take and the land itself. How land and landowners forever changed the story of civilization. All ahead on Life Examined. From Bronze Age farmers to New World colonialists, land ownership has been prized, sought after, inherited, and fought over. Even today, financial success or adulthood is often marked by owning a house on a plot of soil. But this thirst for land has resulted in wars, class structure, persecution, while thousands of indigenous tribes have been displaced. So, is private property a sign of a civilized or an uncivilized society? How did this notion of ownership change our values? And is it time to rethink our sense of entitlement to the land? In his latest book called Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World, best-selling author Simon Winchester dives into the history of land ownership and reflects on how gaining access to property has exposed the darker side of humanity. Simon Winchester, welcome to Life Examined. It's a great pleasure. You begin this book with your own land acquisition. This is in Dutchess County, New York. And I was wondering how you used this to delve into this subject of land ownership. Yes, I bought the land when I came to the United States after 13 years in Hong Kong. And I'm very much a sort of country bumpkin. So I decided to buy a little house in the countryside about hour and a half north of New York City and settled on this little hamlet called Wasaic. And um, ultimately, I sold the house, but I kept the land. And when I had bought the land, which is essentially useless, but beautiful, it's useless because it's on the north facing slope of a mountain. So it wasn't very good for agriculture or anything like that. But it was remote and it was beautiful. And one day, two or three years ago, my wife and I were chatting over breakfast about and I don't want to give you the impression that we only talk about highfalutin things at breakfast, <laughs> but she was talking about the impact that the Enclosures Acts in Britain had on emigration in the, in the 17th and 18th centuries. And um, that got us talking about communally owned land or common land. And that took us to think about this 120-odd acres in Dutchess County, which we seldom visit, pay taxes on, but seldom visit. And that got me to thinking, well, what does ownership really mean? It's all about it. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? And that really was the trigger that allowed me to go to my editor and say, how about I do a book about the ownership of land all around the world? Mm. And if we go back hundreds, if not thousands of years, I mean, th there was undoubtedly a large swath of time where land ownership either didn't exist or how we think of it now was completely different. Totally. So when Henry Hudson came up the river that now bears his name in 1609 as an agent for the Dutch, despite him being English. Um, he met these, first of all, the Lenape and around where New York City is today, and then the Mohican, and then a few Iroquois further north up near Albany. And with all of them, he found them extraordinarily friendly and nice and sophisticated and lots of agriculture and lots of gifts given each to the other. And um, they decided, they, the invaders, the white invaders, um, that they would acquire some of the land. And they, you can find early land deeds with clearly the Native Americans being puzzled because they didn't own it. Right. But nonetheless, and obviously it's not a condescending thing to say that they didn't read or write, but you see these old documents from the 17th century made out in beautifully curlicued Dutch and with the Mohicans having drawn a little goat or a sheep or a buffalo as their indication of their assent to whatever these foreigners were wanting. What they were wanting was a bit peculiar to them, mm. but what they got 
was something that they then transferred. It was title. They were entitled, in their view, to the land, and they've had it, and now I've got it, ever since. So they began a chain which bewildered the Native Americans, but of course makes perfect sense to us now, except not perfect sense to me, which is why I question the whole apparatus and find it so fascinating. So if we go back then uh, quite a bit further than, than even Henry Hudson, uh, you, you kind of come up with this idea of what two bronze-aged farmers in England might have, might have been like and how they might have interacted within this concept of land ownership. C- can you maybe use that to illustrate how we might have begun to come up with this notion of entitlement or the, the land title? The whole concept of borders, frontiers, completely fascinates me. How did it all begin? In a sort of national sense, I've always thought if you think of the early human civilizations which spread out from Olduvai in, in, in Northeast Africa, you've got, let's say, the Nilotic peoples in the Nile Valley, you've got the people in Mesopotamia, you've got the people in the Indus Valley, you've got the people in China. Imagine them spreading outwards like um, penicillin, if mm. you like. So in, for instance, thinking of Mesopotamia and the Nile, they too meet after they spread and spread and spread somewhere like Basra in Iraq, I think is probably the first national border where two peoples ethnically very different, first of all, encounter each other and will draw back and put up a post and saying, well, this on one side, we are the Nilotic people, and on the other side, we're the Mesopotamian people. But where did that come from? And I think that probably came from, as you mentioned, two farmers. Let's assume they were Bronze Age, using these early um, ploughs uh, called kashrom, which were hardened sticks and then ultimately with metal tips, to allow them to break up the soil and plant seeds and grow things, so the beginning of settled agriculture. And let's just imagine two farmers, friends, rivals possibly, but living within sight of one another, one drawing his furrows in, let's say, a north-south direction, and one perhaps slightly up a hill away, and his furrows happen to go in a slightly different direction, let's say, northwest-southeast. And where those two sets of furrows meet, there's clearly a disconnect, and they decide to mark that junction with maybe a, a hedge or a line of stones or a line of sticks, at first rather informal, but slowly, as generations succeed, that line becomes the border between two farms mm. and, and ultimately between two villages and ultimately, ultimately between two cities and two states. And interestingly, in England still to this day, there are these ceremonies called beating the bounds. And I remember my parents who lived in Rutland in a small county in the very middle of England, every, sometime in spring, I think it was, um, there would be a beating the bounds ceremony where the local vicar and the local sort of town chiefs, if I can put it like that, would take the school children round to the various boundaries, very, very old, sort of 11th, 12th century boundaries that were marked out and there would be stones still of great antiquity marking the very boundaries and the small boys, it sounds terribly brutal, they were often turned upside down and their heads gently banged onto the ground <laughs> so that they would remember for all of their lives where the boundaries were and pass that on to their children. So boundaries are very important and very ancient. But when did it really become more formalized and why? The sense that, no, no, this isn't just my plot. This is, this is, where, this is where my blood lives. This is, this is mine. I own the soil below my feet. Right. Well, and, and of course, nations uh, as well would have that view of, of the whole matter of sovereignty. So individual sovereignty, local sovereignty, and then national sovereignty. Right. Well, I suppose one can say, looking at Britain, which I suppose I know or used to know reasonably well, it's a phenomenon that really began in earnest in the 14th and 15th centuries with this idea of enclosure, was up to that point although large tracts of land were, quote, given by the sovereign to feudal lords, a lord would be encouraged to join the king's army to go and fight the French or someone, Spaniards, Dutch. And in return for his service, he would be given land, but a large amount of land, I mean, Yorkshire or something ludicrous as that. 
But within uh, th that community, within there would be lots and lots of villages. And within each village, all the land would be communally owned. So you'd get the little houses and in the middle would be, I don't know, 20, 30 acres of land on which all the locals would raise their cattle or raise their sheep or their pigs and grow their turnips or their potatoes, or depending on the climate, their wheat or their corn. And that was fine, except the cows tended to trample on the turnips and the pigs would eat the wheat or whatever. And it was slowly began, so people became more sophisticated in their understanding of agriculture, that it would be better if the land was individually owned and hedges were put up so that the cattle could be kept off the wheat and the pigs away from the turnips. And so borders, initially informal borders, started dividing and cutting up the common land and making it bits of it into private land. Well, that was really codified formally in 1604, about the same time, oddly enough, as Hudson was sailing up the river here. And Acts of enclosure were passed in Parliament, first of all in Dorset, where I went to school, and a little town called Radipole. A sign was tacked to the church door saying that the common land in the centre of Radipole was going to be cut up, and John Smith was going to own these 20 acres, and Peter Barnes was going to own those 20 acres, and so on. If anyone objects, you've got a month or so to object, and if no one does object, then this will cease to be common land and it will be privately owned land. And that had all sorts of effects, social effects, because a lot of people were dispossessed of their common land and they started to either go to the cities, and of course the Industrial Revolution was about to start, so that augmented the flow, or else they began to emigrate. And that, going back to the, your original question, when my wife and I were talking about it, what effect did the Enclosures Acts on people saying, I'm going to come and live in another country where these barbaric things don't happen. I'm going to go to America, Canada, Australia, wherever. So it did have an enormous social effect. But once you own land, once you claim to own land, and because land is immutable, or at least was thought to be immutable, doesn't go anywhere, you can borrow against it. You can use that as collateral. You can go to a bank and say, look, I own 20 acres of fine agricultural land. I'll put that up as surety for a loan, and with that loan I'll buy a house or I'll buy a wagon or in later years buy a motor car or a refrigerator or whatever. So the whole capitalist economy is underpinned by this notion of land ownership. Hugely important, not terribly old, socially disruptive, but is it a good thing? And that's really what the book is about. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of what you just said that caught my attention, particularly that this is not very old. I mean, this is, we. I think as an American looking across to a place like England, I, I figured there were land titles for thousands of years or, or a more formalized system, but you're talking about the 1600s, not very long ago. And I, I wonder, how do you think it changed human nature or how we thought of ourselves or the family or our place in the world? Because to me, that seems like a really important shift in, in kind of in society. I think you're absolutely right. I think on a, in the early days, it produced a sense of comfort and well-being. And the idea of entitlement, where you are entitled to the land, did induce in people a sense of um, satisfaction, if you like, personal satisfaction. Unfortunately, and this once again is something that I try and explore in the book, it led to a number of things which are not good. One of them, of course, being greed. You think that, well, I own 20 acres, but why not 40? Why not 100? Mm. Why not 1,000? Why not, in the case of this amazing Australian woman, Gina Reinhardt, 29 million acres, which is more, I think, than the entire land surface of England and Wales. So greed is one thing. It got out of hand. It has gotten out of hand. And the other thing is the concept of trespass. I should go back a bit. That when you, that there is a difference between real estate, which most people know about, you know, that's the land and any buildings on it, or real property. Real property attaches conceptually to the idea of real estate because it's the so-called so bundle of rights, the rights you have when you own land. Um, you can fell the timber, you can mine it, you can throw people off it, you can have, and you can assign it to other people and so forth. But this idea that once you own land, you have an absolute legal right 
to throw people off it and to call upon officers of the law to do so. That has gotten out of hand as well, particularly, sorry to say, in this country, my adopted country. Um, trespass, the whole notion of trespass. If you look at a country like Sweden or Norway, there is no tr concept of trespass. Mm. The concept of one of the Scandinavian languages is almans ratten. Everyone, all men's right extends to every acre of the country. You can walk wherever you like. But in this country, the concept of trespass is so rigorously policed. And um, in certain parts of America, particularly in the West, and with certain somewhat notorious people, particularly uh, rigidly applied, that once again, that's got out of hand. So the social effects of owning land are manifest, not all of them good. So would you say that ultimately this notion of land ownership and the entitlement was was something that was that was divisive and, and ultimately harmful? Initially, no, not at all. I mean, the idea, and John Locke and indeed Jefferson espoused it, have a small amount of land, mm. improve it, make it better than it was, mm. draw from it, and I don't want to get all religious here, but draw from it the, the bounty of the land, because... You can grow crops on the land in a sustainable way that will do the land good and do you good as well. It will feed your family. It will produce materials from which you can build shelter and so forth. But just don't push it too far. Don't pollute it. Don't have too much of it. So how much is enough? Well, Jefferson, the idea was somewhere for a rural America. They had no views about cities. But rural America, between 30 and 100 acres, maybe. And that should sustain a family, of course. Now, with more efficient agriculture, you can do much better than that. But that, those basic principles seem to me to be fine. It's the way that they've currently been interpreted, which are not fine, and which has made the whole land situation, I mean, particularly in Scotland until recently, was um, completely upended, where there used to be a theatre company called the 784 Theatre Company, because 7% of the population of Scotland owned 84% of the land. And that's more or less the situation in the United States to get today. And that, in my view, is wrong. I feel like I so much hear about land acquisition as, as something that's extractive right now and something that is not sustainable. I mean, this is the story of American agriculture. This is the story of the American West of, of mining through mountains, of mountaintop removal in the Southeast. But it's interesting to hear you talk about another set of philosophies from some founding fathers, as we say, that were one uh, that sounds more balanced, I guess. That is exactly it. I mean, it, it makes me weep to hear what you've just said. I mean, the shaving off of mountaintops in West Virginia, the wholesale, particularly in the administration, which, the, I'm sorry, I don't want to get into politics too much, but the way the despoliation of the, particularly in the national forests and the national parks has been going on lately is, is completely tragic. Yes, you can extract some things and do it in a responsible manner, but the wholesale disregard for the land, I keep coming back to this point that the Australian Aboriginals make. The land is our mother. It sustains us. Look after her. She is to be treasured. That is no longer the philosophy, particularly in the, in the American West today, among a small group of very powerful and very wealthy people. I wonder if you could talk about some some new ideas or some interesting ideas or some radical ideas for land ownership. I, I say this as a 30-something in coastal California who <laughs> basically he and his friends are uh, remarking on the, pack, uh, the fact that they themselves will probably never be landowners anywhere near here. And people are having to come up with new ideas of co-ops or coming together in different ways. I, I just wonder when you were researching this book, how you... Um, saw different examples around the globe of what land ownership could be? Well, here in Western Massachusetts, where I'm speaking to you from today, um, my next door village is called New Marlborough. And they have set up something in recent years called the New Marlborough Land Trust, where people donate their land to the trust for the community as a whole. And that is going great guns. Community land ownership fastest growing phenomenon in land ownership. In the eastern United States, it, uh, also it's going on in Georgia 
and in Arkansas, particularly in Vermont as well. So that is an idea which is coming to fruition. I mean, New Zealand is a, a classic case. I mean, this is a, a country which in 1840, the British compelled the Maori, who after all had owned, if you can, or had lived in and inhabited New Zealand for the previous 700 years, um, they had their land taken away. It was now a British crown colony. Well, and there have been wars fought between the Maori and the British on a number of occasions during Victorian times. Now it's a, a peaceful country, but the Maori are saying, well, what about getting our land back? And particularly under Jacinda Ardern's uh, prime ministership, they're starting to get their way. It's very complicated because, after all, if you are a family of Pakeha, white people who live, let's say, in the, on a farm in the northern part of uh, the South Island of New Zealand, you will have a title document which shows that you own that farm and grandparents did and previous people up to, let's say, the 1870s or 1880s. Um, for the Maori family or tribe that previously owned that to say, well, we want it back, there's a whole raft of legal opposition to that idea and it would be fought out in courts and it would take years and would be very expensive to unravel. But if you take the more common sense approach, which is to say, all right, why don't we give the Maori tribe that owned that land ultimate title so that they're the notional owners and you now have to pay rent to them forevermore, but you can continue to live there. That seems to me to be a prudent and sensible way of dealing with this problem. Mm -hmm. It just, as you say this, it reminds me of just the British and the history of the Commonwealth, and it's been a source of so many of these conflicts caused by land ownership. It's all our fault. I mean, it is, I speak as, as an Englishman, <laughs> and I'm fascinated by the empire, but my God, the problems we have caused. I mean, the classic above all, of course, is the line that poor Sir Cyril Radcliffe was called upon in 1947 to draw in six weeks in a country he'd never been to, India. And he got out his fountain pen and some out-of-date maps and drew a line which separates now India from Pakistan. Mm. And of course, as you all well know, the, the social impact of that immediately after independence was that millions of people crossed this line to escape into their, as it were, religious homeland and millions were killed as a result. Mm. So land disputes like that caused by the British continue to fester to this day. Mm. And of course, there's so many other examples we could think of in the Middle East after World War One, or we could talk about too, uh, land given to Israel. I mean, the story goes on and on and on. Um, I, I wonder how you think climate change will play a role in land ownership as we move into the future. Presumably some places will be worth less, some will be worth more. There could be, as we've learned and spoken to journalists on this program, um, massive migrations moving into the future. What are your thoughts on that? This idea that land always stays the same, is immutable, is no longer true because, as you mentioned, because of climate change, because of sea level rise. I mean, it's happening imperceptibly, but in the last... 10 years, I think 13,000 acres of the east coast of the United States has been nibbled away because the sea is rising. It's going to continue to nibble away, gnaw away whole countries, of course, Bangladesh, parts of Bangladesh, South Pacific Islands and Indian Ocean Islands, the Maldives, places like uh, Tonga and uh, uh, Kiribati and Vanuatu will have problems. And as you, I'm sure you know, New Zealand is the first country in the world to offer sea level change refugee status to islanders who want to leave their land or are compelled to leave their land uh, and come to New Zealand as refugees. This is going to have an effect. It's not really having an effect at the moment. But reminding people that land is actually not immutable, that it is being eaten away, is presumably going to change the economic dynamic of land ownership, it's going to become more valuable, particularly inland land. And that, of course, means, as far as this country is concerned, yet more pressure on the American West, because the big cattle barons will want more land in Nebraska and Iowa and so forth. And maybe they'll not be so interested in California, Oregon, Washington, Virginia, South Carolina, and so forth. 
but they will want the American West. That, when you consider the pressure on water and so forth, is very dangerous. So the effects are going to be profound. Mm. What do you think the future of, of land ownership is going to look like in the next 50 to 100 years? I doubt whether it'll change enormously in this country. In Scotland, as I've mentioned, it's changing. In Northern Europe, the idea that everyone ought to have access to the land, if not necessarily to own it, has spread and has consolidated itself. In England, things are getting better. The right to roam, the right to ramble. Access to land is improving. Ownership, not necessarily. Uh, in this country, I'm hoping that the kind of movements that I've mentioned to you about um, community land ownership in the Northeast may spread, but I think there'll be a powerful amount of resistance to it. It needs some sort of national effort. It needs someone to say in Washington, this is getting out of hand. People are too greedy. People are ruining the land. It's got to be. And the Australians, oddly enough, I think the, the fires that broke out last year are giving a salutary warning to the Australians. Listen to the indigenous people. They know how to manage land. The original British explorers, Captain Cook, Joseph Banks, who went there in the 1770s, were amazed at how sophisticatedly the people that they encountered, what we now call the Aborigines, how they looked after their land. Similarly, we should look with a much more sympathetic eye to the way that the Cherokee and the Sioux and the Pueblo Indians manage their land, take some lessons from them. Whether we will, I don't know. Whether there's sufficient of a sea change, if that's not a too mixed a metaphor, I'm not certain. But change is necessary because land is all we've got. I was just thinking how different the rambling rights in the UK or the right to roam are, as I recently saw a film on uh, in Scotland there. I mean, people now have the ability to just walk walk through massive parcels of land, which is something inconceivable in the US. But I think entirely laudable. I think, I mean, I'm certainly happy with, I've got 75 acres here in Massachusetts and 123 in, in uh, New York State. Perfectly happy for anyone to come and enjoy it. As I do, it's our land, it's not my land. And I want that to be the guiding principle in this country at the moment. Don't tread on me, is, that's what it's all about mm. here. And it needs to, we need to have a change in attitude. It's funny because a lot of the people who are so vociferous about this came originally, their ancestors, from countries which now have a liberal attitude. I mean, you read Willa Cather, you look, all of those people in Nebraska, so many of them came from countries where attitudes to land are very much more liberal. Come to Nebraska, come to Iowa, and suddenly it's, no, this is my land, get off it. Or if you don't, I'll shoot you. Mm. That, it, to me, is an irony. Simon Winchester, we really appreciate you spending some time with us here on Life Examined on KCRW. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been very enjoyable. Still to come, land use and abuse. Our next guest says, even if Native American land is owned by others, its ancient heritage should be acknowledged. That's ahead on Life Examined after this short break. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard historian Simon Winchester discuss his latest book called Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World. Winchester says we need to shift our attitudes towards land ownership and examine more closely how tribes like the Cherokee, the Sioux, and Pueblo Indians have managed their land. So what lessons can be learned from indigenous people in terms of agriculture or conservation? And how have their views on land ownership been misunderstood and disrespected? Mishana Goldman is a member of the Tonawana Band of Seneca, which is a Native American tribe from the American Northeast. She's a professor of gender studies and American Indian studies at UCLA. Professor Goldman is also a special advisor to the Chancellor on Native American and Indigenous Affairs. Well, Mishana Goldman, welcome to Life Examined. We appreciate the time. It's so nice to be here. 
Well, how how do we think about land ownership or territories from the perspective of indigenous cultures in the United States or from or from the tribe from which you descend? Where, where does your mind go when we begin to tackle this big subject? Well, first I'll begin in indigenous protocols, which is just to introduce myself as Mashana Goman. I'm Tonawanda Band of Seneca, what people now know as Western New York, but I'm part of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, which expands, um, which is the oldest democracy in the world mm. that expands well into Canada, all at one point went all the way down to Pennsylvania. Mm. And I speak to you today from Tawangar, which is the land of the Gabrielino Tamba. And uh, just at UCLA, that's where I work and live, and we acknowledge uh, we acknowledge the Tamva daily there. Yeah, thank you for that. And so, how do we how do we begin to approach questions of of land and ownership, or or even the right words for for let's say uh, your your tribal band? How do we start the conversation? Well, I think we uh, we start with that recognition that I just did. But we also, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about Indians and land. And this, a lot of my work is around this. Uh, the fact that uh, there's this common misconception that Indians didn't own land is something that stems from our kind of political roots in, in, of American political roots, but not that of indigenous peoples. Uh, we actually did have territories. We had marketplaces. We had meeting places that were uh, shared pieces of land that were connected. We had hunting spots and fishing spots. And of course, this the ways that native people think of land varies from tribe to tribe. There's over 575 four recognized tribes in the United States right now. Uh, there's many, many more unrecognized tribes, especially in California, where right. we're, I'm speaking from. Um, the treaty system, because California came in late into um, the domestic space of the nation, uh, resulted in lost treaties and lost lands and things like that. So the California genocide in California was really intense mm. in terms of that land grab that happened after California became part of the U.S. in the 1850s. So there's a particular way that different people think of different lands. In Los Angeles, for instance, the Tamba organized themselves by various villages because there was, uh, you know, the land was rich with food and resources, et cetera. Um, where, where I am from, we had larger organized villages and that was because it took a lot of people to uh, work the land and to gather and hunt. And uh, that was necessary to live together in larger communities. So in some ways, the land kind of defines how we interact as as people with the land. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a particular element there that influences also where people live or that kind of place base that can inform people, can inform their aesthetics, it can inform their arts, and it can inform their songs, and it informs their languages. The tie between languages and land is is really where you get this deep knowledge or what we call traditional ecological knowledge hmm. of how the land uh, can live in reciprocity with, with a certain group of people. But again, that depends on where the tribe would be located. Right. Uh, for instance... Um, and on the East Coast, where, where I'm from, there's, uh, we organize our communities by clans, and those clans are passed down through the mother, and those clans are deeply tied to the land and the ways that they're named. Uh, for instance, my family is the Hawk Clan, and uh, that's deeply tied to kind of the organizing principles that we use as well. You mentioned the word reciprocity, which seems really important in this conversation, and and this connection between language and the land. Can you go a little bit further into that? Well, when we when we talk a lot with elders, and we talk talk a lot um, at UCLA with the local communities here, for instance, we talk about reciprocity. Craig Torres is one of the cultural educators of the Tamva, and he talks about maha, which is a gifting or a swapping of knowledges. And there's a particular way reciprocity with land is understanding that you're tied to it. Your whole health system is tied to that. Mm. Uh, there, he has these wonderful uh, 
teaching guides, for instance, with, with young people starting early on. Um, a lot of times people get their native history in fourth grade, but uh, Craig Torres was like, we need to teach them first what's at stake in that the land right. principles. And part of that is teaching reciprocity. If you give a plant water, just say one, you know, a kid growing up with one plant and they can see it grow, but there's reciprocity between you and the plant. You have to water it. You have to take care of it. You have to make sure it has sun and soil. Uh, there's a, that's a particular form of reciprocity in order to begin to understand the connection between your actions that you take and the land itself. And so, and I think native people have an amazing amount of knowledge to offer in terms of teaching reciprocity, but also relationality to the land. So say we have an elderberry tree, which is, is something that people in California have used for a long time for our health in that particular kind of care. That's related to the deer. It's related to it, it, it's related to medicines that we use. It's related to our just ingesting or feeding us or giving us sustenance. There's all sorts of ways that that tree can be in reciprocity. But we also have to make sure that we harvest at the right time. We gather and we do things correctly as well with a with intent. In my community, we call it kind of you have to do things with intent. Mm. And this makes me think so much about the climate struggles that we're in, about ecological health, and about just the importance and the depth and the wisdom of some of these traditions when it comes to uh, understanding the reciprocity of our relationship with the land, no? Oh, yes. We have in, in my community in Haudenosaunee Confederacy, before we begin any programming or any kind of events, we start with a Thanksgiving address. And the Thanksgiving address goes from the teachers to the medicine people to all the various kinds of plants, the ones that give us sustenance again, but the ones that give us medicines. We go all the way to the the insects the and then the deer and we have we name all of these different categories in our thanksgiving address and that's mm. the words that come before all else because you have to be thankful for that sort of that that sort of land that gives you who you are as a being and in that respect, if you can acknowledge the connection, not just between yourself, but the animals and the plants and, and how that sustains a whole world system, then you will have a different idea than of how to, how to enter into a conversation as human beings. Mm. And the Thanksgiving address, I highly suggest, it's just the most beautiful piece of, uh, it's, 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 it's just the most beautiful way to start things off with a good mind and with a good intention. And you're doing it because you're taking care of all of those things around you. Mm. And uh, Chief Warren Lyons uh, has just the most beautiful Thanksgiving address that, that you can watch and it's pretty ubiquitous so mm. you can find it online. Yeah, we, we would love beautiful. to link to that. Yeah, no, that sounds, that sounds wonderful. So within these important concepts, how would your tribe on the East Coast then think about ownership of land? Is that even the right word to use here? The idea that one person can own the land, do what they will with the land? Because this is so much what we've been talking about on this program in terms of how uh, how the Western world or the European Western world developed. Like I said, there is an idea of territory that people had. Uh, you took care of the territory that you lived in, mm. and uh, that be, that's very important. There are also meeting places. A lot of the cities in the United States are at these meeting places. Chicago was a huge meeting place mm. for Anishinaabe people and also Haudenosaunee people. It was a, a place that, that we met to market or to trade goods or, you know, just interact with each other. Albuquerque is another meeting place for Southwest tribes. So there, there are many, many, many places that were these meeting places where people would work. But there were territories that, that existed. Also, people recognized whose territory you were in. It was acknowledged when Indians traveled from place to place, which that sometimes I, I don't think people realize that the US, all the roads that we have where the railroad was built, those are travel routes that already existed. Mm, wow. So there was an idea of territory or whose territory you were in and how that territory related to them as a, as a people. Uh, with locking kind of ideas of labor, you work the land to be to become kind of a good citizen of the US, right? Like 
working the land means you have ownership and property. It becomes property in that sort of way under individual ownership. Now, the idea of individual ownership linked to property comes about through colonization. We don't get there until actually the colonization of the US and Africa and other places around the world. It brings into concept this idea of land as property in as it travels through colonial circles. To be clear, there's a particular way our small patches of land that we have left out of these expansive er areas across the United States states, those small patches of land, we do have to think of that as important territory. There's currently a movement called, uh, done, by the, done by young people um, in very important ways, but a movement called Land Back, hashtag Land Back. And the Land Back movement is actually gaining traction. Tribes through various mechanisms are able to buy back their land now and these important sites to protect them. It's, it's sad to have to buy back your land when it was particularly stolen in the first place. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, you know, it's, it's a very complicated process, but people, a lot of people don't actually want to buy land. They don't believe buying land through uh, kind of the processes of capitalism is an appropriate thing to do. But then under those auspices, people do what they have to do to survive. So buying land back, keeping it protected becomes really, really important or fighting for it on the national parks. A lot of the national parks are built on sites that uh, native people hold sacred. So when you have something like Oak Creek Flats in Arizona that was recently sold to the Rio Tinto uh, mining company, that threatens that particular form of land. Tribes, however, can act with sovereignty that they have in the U.S. to try to protect those sites. So you see a lot of pairing up also with tribes lately around protecting um, land sites and public park sites that had a lot threatening them in the last four years. Right, say, right, right. As they were sold to mining companies and sold off. Uh, but protecting those sites becomes really important you have to, in that way, fall into working with the settler colonial system that demands you have a right over land or dominion over land versus what my uncle always told me is you don't protect land sovereignty. Land protects your sovereignty as a human being. I have noticed that there is this growing trend in the same way that you began our interview today about people starting to recognize the traditional territories of different tribes. Is that something that you would like to see continue? I see it as a land introduction, and I've talked about this recently in other ways, because there is some criticism about land acknowledgement. Okay, you acknowledge the land, but you're not giving it back, right? Mm. Or you acknowledge the land, but you're still going to mine it or treat it badly, right? Uh, there becomes a particular aspect of that. But if done rightly, a land acknowledgement can become a land introduction. It can make you rethink those geographies, reorientate you towards your own life and your own actions that you take in life. And that's kind of the goal. It's indigenous protocol. It has been since time memorial, since well before Europeans arrived, to introduce yourself before you go into a territory, right? Mm. To introduce yourself and, and express what your intentions are. And in some ways, that's what a land acknowledgement can do. It can help you express your intentions, but there has to be action that's taken after those intentions as well. Can you talk a little bit about the notion of land as being sacred and what that means for certain tribes? I, it seems like this is this is an important distinction from from a Western perspective, where that doesn't seem as present in the U.S. I don't. Land is not to Indian in this kind of equal equation, right? And I think sometimes some of the work that was done in the 1970s around the environmental movement or, or even today, there's a kind of nostalgic approach that can happen hmm. between Indians and land or all Indians think all land is sacred. Right, right. Um, and that's kind of a romanticization in many ways. It was a lot of work to learn how to live off the land that the creator gave you or where the creator gave you that land. You had to, there was a lot of scientific knowledge that was passed down from generation to generation in order to learn how to farm particular plots of land or ideas of land. There's a great seed sovereignty movement now that uh, that is 
maintaining some of those traditions and seed plants that will, I think, save us all in terms of climate change, these seed sovereignty projects, because Native people understand the changing climate over a longer duration of time. Hmm. Um, and it's relatively recently, quite honestly, that uh, Western forms of science have even seen all land and water as connected, mm -hmm. whereas it was part of the very philosophies of understanding how land operates for many Native people. So we have sacred spaces, yes, but I think all land is sacred and all land should be lived with in reciprocity, right? Because there's not divisions. Uh, and that that's where, where some people, particularly in, in federal Indian law, where, where things get parsed out, it's not like you can put a border around a sacred space and it won't be affected, right? Air connects us all, for instance. The wind connects us all. Water and the aquifers are connected in these large living ecosystems. And this is knowledge that is embedded often in how Native people conceive of farming or conceive of uh, conceive of living in their particular spaces. You can mm. see it in the artwork that people do. You can see it. Um, you can just see it in the in all the kind of practices of organizing how important that is as land and water as interconnected space. Right. I wonder if you have any more examples. Um, I, I love you there talking about the importance of of the seeds, but but other examples um, in which this this knowledge of the land could ultimately be be useful for this climate disaster we're heading towards right now. I always think about how elders often have a long term view of this short blip of colonization, right? Or that land actually is its own being. And in that sense, understanding land as its own being, many, well, I will, I'll, I'll speak for myself here. The earth is going to survive. We may not be part of it, but <laughs> the right. earth will still be here. And hopefully that will uh, rebolster itself. I do think we need to do what we can until that moment in order to push for uh, better practices. I always, people always ask me, well, you talk about settler colonialism, which is an ongoing set of structures. Colonialism didn't end in 1492, but it's ongoing in terms of how land uh, is still becoming in possession of various uh, capitalist systems, such as the mining in Oak Creek Flax, which which is a incredible um, will be an incredible destruction of a sacred site, but also an environmental hazard. Uh, you have these sorts of these sorts of places that we can kind of put our hat on right now to fight against the corporatization of public lands and public goods, because that isn't just about protecting it for native people, but protecting it for all of us as we, as we go through these moments of climate change. And um, I just see the, the awful, the awful destruction, for instance, of uh, dams, and how that operated in the Northwest with fishing and salmon. Um, there was a move to put a mine outside of a salmon um, waters in the Northwest that would would um, hurt the supply of freshwater salmon. What the tribe did, they did a great uh, marketing kind of element to it. Everybody loves fresh salmon, right? Fresh wild salmon. Uh, but the idea that that could actually, the mining could poison and strain those waters was was a was a huge uh, issue for it that's ongoing. So you see native people time and time again fighting to protect the salmon that they see as their relatives or whether they're fighting to protect the sacred sites in Oak Creek Flats or fighting against pipelines, right? That right. were deliberately put outside the reservation to hurt those water supplies. I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on on questions of of uh, Los Angeles tribes, uh, the islands here, which I know, which are which are incredible and have quite a bit of history, and anything you're you're seeing locally to help us understand this connection between land and uh, tribal territories and the place that we live here in Southern California. The Gabardino Tamba have wonderful stories. I highly suggest uh, for those with children. There's a there's a great books out by Wendy. Uh, 
Bushoy Alvitre and Cindy Alvitre and Julia Bogany, who's the cultural educator of the Tomba, uh, through stories and, and landed stories, we see just this beautiful, complex uh, Tomba landscape. Uh, for instance, Pimu, which is what we know as Catalino, has a deep, rich history. It's seen as the belly button of the, the Tomba. And if we reorientate our geographies, right? We can see that the Tamva are the eastern part of Oceania. And in that way, they kind of become a, a really important people for welcoming others from that side of the world as well. Uh, specifically, uh, Pacific Islanders, there's stories that, that people came from far away and long before Europeans that there was a kind of trans-Indigenous connections in the in Pimu for that instance becomes like kind of that gateway, that belly button of the Tomba nation. That's really interesting, right? Because we think of ourselves as West Coasters and maybe yeah. when we re reorient ourselves, we are we're on the far east of, of a much larger place, a much larger, larger body of water, aren't we? Yeah. Cindy Elvitre, who's the head of the Tiat Society, which is the canoe society for the Tomba, she calls it Eastern Oceana. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Any last last things thinking about West Coast here that that have caught your attention? Um, I know you're from the East Coast, but but now having been in California for a number of years, that would be important for our listeners to know about. I, I would just like to say that it's important to recognize where you're at mm. every single day. Be cognizant of where your water comes from. We, of course, didn't have time to get into that. But everybody in L.A. should be we're connected to the Owens Paiute in the mountains because of our water usage. Uh, understanding these sort of elements can live in in what Craig Torres calls reciprocity and relationality and responsibility. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, I just want to say that I, I hope we all think responsibly with land and not just view it as a transactional element where it's we, we take from it and don't give something back, right? There always has to be, um, you know, the, those formations for me of that Thanksgiving address where we thank, thank the plants and animals that give us life mm-hmm. and provide us life in yeah. important ways. Well, Mishana Goman, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate this. You're welcome. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. You can also email me your feedback directly at jonathan.bastion at kcrw.org. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastion. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.